Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What encouraged a young man who had spent most of his formative years being raised by the Holy Roman Emperor, the Habsburg Charles V, to bite the hand that feeds him and become one of the empire's greatest enemies? Why risk his life, spending most of his adult years leading a revolt, when he could have enjoyed the pomp and pleasure of being a prince? And when did the revolt he led become meaningful, something that even he recognised at the time as building a nation. The man in question is William the Silent, aka William, Prince of Orange. Born in 1533, who led the Dutch Revolt, or the Eighty Years' War, against the Spanish, the Habsburgs, and the Portuguese, beginning in the 1560s. His is a fascinating life indeed. So in today's podcast, we begin our adventure by touching on one fraction of it, his time as what our guest calls a nationalist leader. Dr. Nick Ridley is Honorary Visiting Research Fellow in the School of Justice Studies at Liverpool John Moores University. He's the author of books on terrorism and insurgency, and today we'll be discussing his work, William the Silent and the Dutch Revolt. Dr. Ridley, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much, Professor Susanna. Um very happy and privileged to be on. Well, I'm delighted that we have a chance to talk about this figure who, of course, is famous in the Netherlands, but perhaps ought to be a little better known in Anglophone countries, William the Silent. Could you introduce him to us? We know that he was born in 1533 into a noble family. Can you give us a sense of who his parents were and when he became Prince of Orange and why we should perhaps regard this role as one with mixed blessings? Yes, certainly. As you quite rightly say, he was born into the family who were counts of Nassau-Dillenberg, which is a small state in what was Germany or the Holy Roman Empire. And during the course of growing up, he inherited through various ancestors territories or holdings in Brabant, in the province of Holland, in Flanders, and the Princedom of Orange, this tiny little enclave, a bit of an anomaly in the south of France. And he was brought up as a Catholic in the court of the Emperor Charles V and became a moderate Catholic, if you like, and increasingly tolerant of other religions. 
at the time when the Reformation was sweeping Europe. I believe you've already had a very informed podcast on Protestantism and Catholicism by Professor Riley. And the Reformation was sweeping Europe, and there were all sorts of changes. And in the teeth of bigotry and anti-heresy, which wanted to exterminate Protestantism, he became increasingly tolerant of other religions, including Catholicism, including Protestantism, including Calvinism. And he became the leader of the Netherlands rebellion against the mighty empire of Spain. Can I just put the Netherlands in its territorial context, please? Yes, do. The Netherlands then were currently what we know as the countries of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. They were, in fact, a collection of 17 semi-autonomous provinces, all jealous of their own particular rights, all with their own parliamentary assemblies, and economically extremely productive. Textiles were booming, they had maritime trade, they had international finance, and agriculturally they were productive. In short, they were an asset to any country or territory or entity which controlled them. And at the time of William's birth, they were controlled by the Emperor Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, arguably the most powerful monarch in Europe. He controlled Austria, Bohemia, Germany as Holy Roman Empire, Spain, Spanish territories in South America, the Netherlands, and holdings in the Duchy of Milan in North Italy and the Kingdom of Naples. And then in 1555, tired of ruling and tired of fighting and wars, he abdicated on behalf of his two sons. To one son, he bestowed or gave over the Holy Roman Empire, the German territories, and to the other son, Philip, he gave the Spanish territories, that is, Philip became Philip II, Kingdom of Spain, and Spain as such held its South American territories, the Italian territories of the Duchy of Milan and Naples, and of course the Netherlands. So William, when he was born in 1533, was a loyal noble, loyal to the emperor, as an imperial prince. And by the time he reached 21, he was a loyal noble as a prince of the empire. And also, he was a loyal noble under the ruler of Philip II of Spain. That's so helpful to give that sense of context. And before we move on to thinking about Philip, I just wanted to ask one question about that upbringing under Charles V. Do you feel that he formed a particularly close relationship with Charles V over these years? And do you think there was any sense of him being torn between Charles and his father? Because they appeared to be very different sorts of men. I think he was quite loyal and had an empathy to Charles because Charles spent most of his time in the Netherlands and was apparently beloved. There was a mutual empathy between him and the people of the Netherlands, having his imperial capital in Mechelen. And indeed, William, as a loyal prince, fought in several of Charles's campaigns and sieges, leading troops from his own estate on behalf of Charles V. He was certainly more loyal to Charles, and by contrast, he formed what we might call there was a history between him and Philip. The second. They both grew up in the court of 
Charles V, because William, inheriting such large estates, it was thought better. He was tutored and brought up in the imperial court. And as late teenagers, he and Philip had quite a lot of contact. Both were extremely reticent and reserved. But there the similarity of personalities end. William was reserved out of natural caution. But he was also extremely outgoing. He was a good communicator, a good speaker, and he was a good negotiator in the sense he was tolerant and could always see the other person's point of view. Philip, on the other hand, his reserved or reticence was out of a lack of confidence. He wasn't a good speaker. He was brooding, rather introvert. He later became suspicious to the point of paranoia. And above all, he was intensive in his Catholic faith. He was, I suspect, the complete opposite Catholic to William. He was intense, fanatical, and he had no time at all for any deviation from the Catholic faith. He was devoted. He performed his devotions daily. So there may have been this, I don't know, jealousy or suspicion between the two from the start. The second aspect of the history was later, I'm jumping forward a bit now, when William was older and he married Anna of Saxony. Anna of Saxony was the daughter of Maurits, the Elector of Saxony. And this was a complete no-no to the Spanish court. Philip, by that time, had gone back to Spain. Quite simply, Maurits of Saxony was loyal to Charles V during one campaign when Charles was fighting the Protestant princes and, in fact, was helpful to Charles in defeating the Protestant princes by 1547. However, the Protestant princes weren't down and out. They formed an alliance with Henry II and renewed the war. And in this war, Maurits of Saxony, despite the fact he'd been given the electorate of Saxony as a reward by Charles, betrayed Charles and changed sides. Maurits was killed, actually. He was mortally wounded in the conflict. And Charles was finally victorious against the Protestant princes and allowed Maurits' descendants to continue as electors of Saxony. But that family, Maurits of Saxony, was a complete anathema because he'd betrayed Charles V. So for William to marry Anna of Saxony, who was quite a strident Protestant anyway, she made no secret of her faith, and to marry into this family put a large question mark against his real loyalties at the court of Madrid. The final aspect of the past history really was in William's favour. So you mentioned in 1555 that Philip became Lord of the Netherlands after Charles V abdicated. He's King of Spain. This is the same Philip, for people who are listening, who is husband to Mary I of England. And William continues his duties, including leading the troops in France to victory, paving the way for a peace deal between Philip and Henry II, Henri de of France in 1559. But the contents of this resulting treaty were rather a shock for William, weren't they? Can you explain why? They were indeed. William was part of the peace delegation sent by Philip to negotiate the peace terms with the French delegates of Henry II, together with the Duke of Alba. 
The Duke of Alba in Spain was a grizzled old Spanish warrior, extremely able soldier, but a fanatical in his Catholicism and had no truck with heretics. He wanted to hang and flog and burn the lot of them. And during the peace negotiations where William and Alba and other Spanish delegates in the various plenary sessions with the French delegation, Alba made it quite clear his views on heresy and Protestantism, and he made it quite clear what should be done and how they should be extirpated completely. He was very careful, however, not to voice his views when William was present in that particular session. He would always make sure that William wasn't present when he was talking to these French delegates. However, after the peace was agreed, and the terms were agreed, during the ratification process, as was the custom, hostages were taken by both sides. Now, this is not hostage in the uh, confrontational or criminal sense that we know today. Rather, they were benevolent peace delegates or delegates of goodwill. Two delegates from either side would be guests at the court of the opposing side during the ratification process. So Alba and William found themselves guests of the court of Henry II while the peace terms were being ratified. To be a hostage or a peace delegate or a delegate of goodwill was quite a pleasant time. All you had to do was kill time at the court of the opposing king and be an honored guest there. And it was quite a pleasant time for William. However, on one occasion, Henry II walked with William in the woods of Chantilly, I think, and had a long conversation with William. It was rather a monologue, actually, as the Fitzess said, as the king talked and William politely listened. But as the king went on and on talking, William became increasingly alarmed and then horrified because Henry expounded and unburdened himself to William about the dreadful state of Europe with this creeping malaise of Protestantism and heresy, and how he, France, and Spain had detailed plans to exterminate Protestants, and that heretics would be dealt with. And in, in fact, French and Spanish troops, though mainly Spanish troops, would be employed to extirpate the Protestantism. And even more alarming to William, the process of elimination would start in the Netherlands. Henry II made the obvious mistake of thinking that William already was aware of some of these plans and that he was in agreement with the Duke of Alba. In fact, this was the first William had heard of it, so he was quite alarmed or shocked, horrified. He gave nothing away, of course. He was very discreet and just squirreled it away in his mind. But he was forewarned that this was a portent of things to come should Philip II have his untrammeled way in the Netherlands, and should Alba be in charge of the Spanish troops, this was what was to come. So he was forewarned in that sense. So those three bits, if you like, or snippets, I would suggest show there was a past history between William and Philip, which meant there was almost from the start a gulf between them. So also in this year, we see Philip returning to Spain because of troubles there, and leaving the Netherlands in the hands of his niece, Margaret of Parma, and three councils who were reporting back to him. And I wonder whether you think that 
not only does he have this sort of portent of what's to come, but now he's got Philip's departure and he's got the reorganisation of the church in the province that Philip has agreed with the Pope. What do you think is the most important factor in fostering William's sense of political frustration? In other words, was he pushed or did he jump into the role of rebel? I think he was pushed because he was quite happy to help Margaret of Parma. Margaret of Parma was extremely loyal to Spain, but at the same time was extremely pragmatic and advocated a certain level of toleration. And William, as part of her council, was quite happy to work with her, together with most of the other lords of the council, to resolve the conflict situation with the growing threat of Protestantism. He did, if you like, go out on a limb when Philip issued an edict in 1566 against all forms of heresy, and he openly stated that this was wrong and he totally opposed this which obviously, once it got back to Philip, together with the other past history, made him a marked man. A lot of the councillors of Margaret were already marked individuals because they'd sent pleas back to Madrid, advising a certain level of moderation against the rising tide of heresy and some form of compromise, if you like, to which was a complete anathema to Philip. So I think he was pushed by this edict of 1566, but it was a gradual process. I mean, this edict was another shock to him, but he was quite happy still to try and work with Margaret de Palma to resolve the situation in the Netherlands. And provided the Spanish troops didn't come, the situation could be resolved. Before 1566, there's a couple of indications that William is operating, perhaps one could say decisively, but also moderately. So, for example, his insistence that Cardinal Granville, who was a chief counsellor and director of the Inquisition, leave the Netherlands in 1563. And then when, despite agreeing to that, Philip still continues to repress heretics in the Netherlands, even executing Anabaptists who had repented, William manages somehow to temper the fury of the nobility and help them move from wanting war at that point in time to drafting the request, which I hope you can tell us about. What should we read into William's character here in terms of his ability to operate his political acumen and also, you know, to play devil's advocate, as it were, should William shoulder some of the blame for the fallout? I mean, issuing ultimatums isn't always the best way to negotiate. In fairness to William, his opposition, together with the other lords, to Granville's reorganisation of the Netherlands church, I mean, rationally it made sense, but the way it was done and the amount of people it was upsetting, nobles, the general populace were uh, perhaps a little perturbed about this, and so many religious houses who were suddenly completely overturned in their authority and their holdings, I think he realised the amount of turbulence this was causing and that Granville had to go. Though, in fact, there's an argument that, in fact, it wasn't Granville's policy, it was Philip's policy all along, and Granville was reluctant to pursue it too hard. But anyway, he was, as you say, decisive, together with the Lords in getting rid of Granville. But then he was conciliatory, as I say, a politician to his fingertips, in keeping some of the more 
pro-Calvinist lords in the Netherlands saying, look, if you persist in this, you'll bring down the wrath of Spain and you'll bring down Spanish intervention. So let's try and have a, a somewhat moderate policy of some form of toleration to Protestantism. And Margaret was going along with this. It was the Anabaptist outbreak where the groups of extreme Calvinists started destroying churches under the popular movement amongst extreme Calvinists, which pushed him to helping Margaret into actually suppressing these. In fact, he held back a little while these riots were going on, but then he realized that he may be tolerant, but he was still a man of law and order. And he helped Margaret, together with two or three of the other lords, in suppressing the purely religious outbursts of the iconoclastic fury which swept the Netherlands in 1566. And it was all but extinguished. Margaret was panicking at first, and she appealed to Philip for troops. But then, as she acted decisively, she was extremely decisive in besieging two or three cities and bringing them to order. And with the help of William and the moderate lords, brought everything almost back to normal. The Anabaptists and the Calvinists completely eradicated except one or two centers of resistance. So she sent dispatches back to Philip of Spain saying, all is well, they have been suppressed, though Philip was having none of this. So in answer to your question, he was a superb politician. I don't think he, the villain of the peace, I think he just wanted to maintain the peace, if you like. And it's this character, this route of behaviour that earns him the moniker The Silent. Yes, indeed. In fact, it's a bad translation of the Dutch word silent. It means, I think, William the Contemplative or William the Discreet or even the Wise. It's a Dutch word which is a combination of discretion and wisdom. It's not really keeping silent per se. It's keeping silent out of keeping your own counsel and thinking, being reflective and arriving at the right decision. I think it's that policy that he showed during the initial rebellion of these religious extremists, the Calvinists, that brings out his quality of discretion and wisdom. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
So let's talk about the next phase when perhaps that moniker isn't quite so appropriate. Can you tell us how the arrival of the Duke of Alba changed the tempo of events in the Netherlands and changed William's attitude to revolt? Well, Margaret had sent her dispatch to Spain saying, all is well, you know, we're just dealing with the final stages. Philip didn't believe a word of it. He'd seen these pleas for moderation and toleration, which upset him and his extreme councillors. And once he learned of these heretical outbursts by the Calvinists, destroying churches, destroying the images in the churches, he resolved that the situation warranted Alba's military intervention. And so Alba and the Spanish tercios eventually were sent. There was one or two delays, but eventually they were sent up the Spanish road through Milan and up the borders of Germany, arriving in Brussels in August 1567. Alba immediately brushed Margaret's policy and protests aside and insisted on full-scale repression. He was going to hang and flog and burn a lot of them. First of all, he established what was called the Council of the Troubles, which was virtually a combination of a judicial tribunal and an inquisition, where he went round and interrogated anyone and everyone who could possibly have been associated with the outbreak of these troubles. Margaret left very quickly after this. She did not wish to be part of this. He also dismissed all the local troops that Margaret and William and the other nobles had employed to suppress the revolt. He dismissed them, saying that the Spanish troops and the German mercenaries he bought would suffice, which caused a lot of controversy and probably a fair deal of unemployment. And also he made it quite clear that the Netherlands would be governed by direct rule from Madrid. He kept saying the Netherlands should not be governed from here, but from there, and pointed southwards towards Madrid. So he made it quite clear that this was going to be a direct rule, and the Netherlands was going to be turned into a Spanish province directly ruled, and a lot of the nobles would lose their privileges. He also summoned William and two or three of the principal lords, ostensibly to have consultations about the way forward. William wasn't fooled for one moment, and he went very quickly to his estates in Germany, where he was out of Alba's reach, and quite justifiably so, because those nobles, the Count Egmont and Count Horn, who actually complied and attended, were immediately imprisoned and eventually executed. And Alba's Council of the Troubles, who was known as Council of Blood, imposed fines and confiscations and confiscation of estates and made over 9,000 people homeless, and there were over a 1,000 executions. So not unnaturally, this caused yet another uprising, which William put himself at the head in 1568. So I think Alba's behavior, Alba's overreaction and completely militaristic intervention pushed William to actually armed conflict and rebellion of 1568, which was a failure, unfortunately, for the Dutch. Well, let's talk about that. So William becomes, as you said, this leader of armed resistance. He finances and maintains a war fleet, the Guerre de Mer, the Sea Beggars. He raises an army of German mercenaries. He allies with some French Huguenots. But the actions of each of these groups didn't always go to plan. Can you give us some idea of the headaches that William faced? 
and whether the problem is that he can't be in more than one place at once. Yes, it was to be a three or four pronged invasion, and William's brother was to lead one group from the northwest. William was to come in from the empire, and he hoped for Huguenot support from the French Protestants. The French Protestants were really not terribly effective. The mercenaries William had at his disposal, basically he ran out of money, and his brother's group actually was soundly defeated, and his brother was killed. And in fact, Alva's military intervention with the experienced Spanish Tertios was completely successful. And William was forced to flee. His estates were confiscated. All his finances on the estate and all his assets were confiscated. And William's son actually was netted in the subsequent roundup and taken to Spain, where he was held captive for a long, long time and only released long time after the struggle had ended. He ended by disbanding his troops and telling them to you know, stay put and stay under the radar, if you like, but there was nothing that could be done. And it all seemed lost, actually. But then Alva spoiled it by, again, an excess policy in 1569, 70, 71. So William's first revolt has been, frankly, a failure. At what point did William's fortunes turn a corner? When would he have felt that the Dutch were making progress? I would suggest 1572. Alva, as I say, went to excess. He got an administration in place. He was virtually mopping up Dutch resistance and then imposed three sets of taxes, the famous three sets of taxes, which were quite harsh on everybody. The nobles, such that were left, negotiated with him and accepted two out of the three taxes. The third was the hated tenth penny which was a 10% tax on virtually everything. It affected the whole population and caused widespread resentment. William, with his remnants of his army, could do little. The only thing he had at his disposal in terms of armed resources were the people you've already mentioned, the word mayor, the sea beggars. These were what you might call the rebel Dutch Navy, though in fact they were corsairs, they were independent privateers. Many of them were pirates, all anti-Spanish, all sympathetic to Protestantism, happy to espouse the anti-Spanish cause, provided they could keep on with their piracy. But superb sailors, and knowing the various coastal waterways in the channel, like the back of their hand, and having not quite naval superiority, but certainly masters of those seas at the time. They were netting through their various piratical activities a certain amount of revenue for William that could keep him going from hand to mouth, if you like. Unfortunately, their sanctuary, which was Elizabeth of England, who was quite happy to give them sanctuary and to stir up the Netherlands against Philip, she was forced to expel them from the English ports due to international merchant pressure, who were sick of the piracy, and this pressure became too great, so she expelled them. She also issued warrants of arrest for the leaders of these Guernemer, but made quite sure that these warrants weren't signed and certainly weren't issued until well after these pirate leaders had left. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they were short of a port as a base, so they made a raid on one of the Dutch ports, the port of Brielle, just south of Rotterdam. And the group that was making this raid suddenly found that it was a perfect port 
as a base. It was unfortified, Al-Bahaj's troops elsewhere. So they fortified the port and turned it into their territory, if you like, or rather the Dutch Revolt territory, and raised a standard of road in Brielle. A week later, they gained another port of Vlissingen or Flushing in April 1572. And immediately, within weeks, other Dutch cities in the province of Holland and Zeeland raised the standard of revolt, and William's fortunes seem to be changing. The Dutch revolt has now got a very small territorial toehold. And that was one particular turning point. A second turning point is in 1574, when Alva's successful campaign of taking Dutch cities one after the other, he'd taken, as part of dealing with the Dutch revolt, the cities of Mechelen, Zutphen, Naarden, and massacred all the garrisons, even though they'd surrendered, and then Haarlem. But he was halted at Leiden, thanks to William's resolute leadership in flooding the surrounding countryside and enabling the relief of Leiden by Dutch barges conveying Dutch rebel forces, including the sailors from the Guadamere. So I would suggest the fortunes of William turn between 1572 and 1574, when we have the taking of Brienne and Flushing, the two ports, the relief of Leiden, which meant the province, the wealthy province of Holland, was reasonably secure. And also the Guadamere had gained a naval victory just south of Middleburg, which meant they gained that extra large port of Middleburg. And I would suggest his fortunes have changed then. If I can just make another point about this period, 1572-1574, if I may, those military victories are seen by historians as very significant I would suggest there's an equally important factor in 1572, and that is after the taking of Brielle and Flushing, the estates of Holland, the parliament and the province of Holland, meet in Dordrecht, and they convene and call themselves the government of Holland and Zeeland, and they repudiate Spanish authority and give complete sovereignty, control, rulership, call it what you like, to a stadhuder, to William. They set up an embryonic administration. They give him complete control of the rebel forces and the navy. And at his insistence, there's religious toleration. He's not going to have any pogroms against Catholics. And also, they grant him a small amount of money. William, through his representative at that meeting, demurs and says, I want more money. The estates are hesitant about this, and William insists. And William's insistence meant that they finally agreed to give him, I think, 100,000 crowns straight away and agree to finance the rebellion for the foreseeable future with regular amounts. And I would suggest that that decision by William, because he realized that this revolt would be a long-term process and it needs money, finances, one of the sinews of war, one of the essential factors of a successful revolt, it was that as well at the meeting in Dordrecht, which was equally significant, I would suggest, as those military victories straddling that meeting in 1572 and 1574. And it was William's foresight on that and his negotiating skills 
that ensured at least there was adequate finances for the immediate future of the revolt. It meant the revolt would survive to the immediate future. And I know that historians have different views on when we can say the Dutch Republic began, whether we are saying 68 or 1572 or the formal beginning in 1588. I wonder, and I'm aware there is so much more we could discuss in terms of talking about the Republic and indeed William's life, but we may need another episode. But two questions in closing, if I may. Do you think William himself saw the revolt as a quest for independence? Would he be surprised to know that the national anthem to this day is the Vilmus, with his name sung as the fearless leader of the nation? I think he'd be quite pleasantly surprised. I think he definitely thought that there should be an independent entity. I think it was the complete abrasiveness, the complete determination by the Spanish or by Philip to extirpate heresy that turned William away from Spain. It didn't turn him against Catholicism, but I would suggest that it made him determined from an early stage that Spanish influence in the Netherlands must be eliminated. I would suggest, in terms of the question you mentioned, that the Dutch Republic or the success of the Dutch revolts, I'll be a bit radical here, was near inevitable by 1576. I would suggest the nucleus of the wealthy province of Holland and Zeeland, which, remember, kept the whole revolt going. I mean, Holland and Zeeland were responsible for 69% of all the financial support for the whole of the Dutch Republic eventually. I would suggest that nucleus of Holland, Zeeland, and most of the province of Utrecht was complete and reasonably secure with men of hindsight by 1574-5. There was adequate finances there, while poor Philip back in Spain in 1574 is already getting warning signs that the Spanish finances are going to run out. So I would suggest by 1576, I know it's probably an early date, that the Dutch Republic, some form of Dutch Republican rebel republic, was assured. It grew, of course, through various political complicating factors after 1577, 1579, and the 1580s. But I would suggest some form of breakaway insurgent entity was fixed and was on course to be successful. That's very helpful. Thank you. Lastly, then, as well as being a historian, you've had a career as a criminal intelligence analyst. And part of your book on William the Silent does something fascinating in that it compares nationalist insurgencies in the 20th and 21st centuries with the Dutch Revolt. What most surprised you when you examined these side by side? During the course of my studies and looking at all the revolts and insurgencies, which I'm trying to specialize in now, I would suggest there are four essential factors of any revolt which ensures either success or failure. Now, this is not a foolproof formula for revolt. I don't claim to be these factors to be comprehensive. Every revolt, every insurgency is different, different circumstances. But I would suggest there are four common factors that are outstanding in any revolt. The first is able leadership, 
and an easily identifiable cause for the general population. The second is adequate military resources. Obviously, if you're going to go into conflict with the possessing power, you need men on the ground and arms and equipment. The third is adequate financial resources. And the fourth is an understanding and favorable international circumstances or even manipulation and exploitation of the international trends. And William, the Dutch revolts, had all four, and William himself was adept and played and was responsible for three of those, the able leadership, a politician to his fingertips, who was an able negotiator and kept everyone except the extreme Spanish repressive forces on side, all the different provinces, all the different parties involved, able leadership and identifiable cause, and adequate financial resources, and he was adept at realizing the need for international support, international recognition, and then gaining that. Despite the fact he was a rebel and anathema in the 16th century, he gained that. So he gained three out of the four, and the Dutch Revolt had all four. That's what struck me about the Dutch Revolt, and that's what makes it, for me, so fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating to have that sense of what makes or breaks a revolt and how we can position the Dutch Revolt and William in the midst of that. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this period, on this extraordinary man, and on this deeply significant development in the history of Europe. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please, do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.